Um, before Michelle exits stage right, I'm going to ask her to come up here real quick here and join me. Uh, something that uh, we, I wanted to do for just a moment because today is a special day for Michelle and me. Today we celebrate 29 years of marriage is our anniversary today. 29 years. So just want to say um, it's been great, Michelle. Thank you for being my wife and standing beside me and being the, just making me a happy man. I appreciate you. You all don't understand this. You do. I know you do because you, you see us both. But you don't know how true it is that I married out of my league. I married above my pay grade. I just really did, I did myself here. Uh, I'm so thankful. Um, not only are I blessed to have a, 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 my, you know, my wife is my best friend and we enjoy things together, but also I get to um, I, my ministry here at Lighthouse for 25 years this fall. It'll be 25 years. Um, she has stood by, I mean, doing whatever is necessary, taught herself the piano the first year we were here because we needed one. Uh, she um, has helped me, organized me, kept me, kept things at home so well that that church was never a, a hardship. It was a, it was something we could do because we did it together, and there was peace at home. So thank you, Michelle, for being my friend, for being my wife, and for 29 years of putting up with me. I'm grateful, and I love you very much. Happy anniversary, and um, thank you all for being with us today. Um, I just wanted to say that this is, I get sentimental at special occasions, and so I'm feeling that way today. And it's been a season of love. Love is in the air. Because last year, two of my kids got married in the same year. What's that all about, you know? And then, um, then this uh, year, I was just a few weeks ago, I was gone one Sunday at my nephew's wedding in Minnesota. And so I was, and my brother-in-law actually spoke at that wedding, and he, and he did a little bit of a talk in the ceremony just, you know, not like a sermon, but just a few minutes as he was doing the wedding, he mentioned 1 Corinthians 13 in the scriptures, in the passage on love. And it kind of stuck in my head at that wedding and thinking about young love and making commitments. And I thought about 29 years coming up this Sunday. And I thought, you know, I'm going to speak about love a little bit on Sunday. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take a break from our series on the books. I told you from the beginning we're going to take a break from that series and come back to it. We're going to come back to our series uh, the books next week, but as we settle along, we're going to step away to make some individual sermons, and today I want to talk about love. Now, if you hear what I just said about our anniversary and the, the wedding that was at, and the First Corinthians 13 and love, and you're like, oh, Arla, you're going to speak about marriage and love today. Great. Here's the problem. I'm not married. I'm a single. I'm happy that way, or I'm not happy. Either way, it doesn't apply to me, or I've been in and out of a bad relationship, so thanks for bringing up that painful subject, you jerk. Or um, maybe you're here today and saying, you know, we're in a tough marriage ourselves right now. Here's the good news for you. Are you ready? I'm not speaking about marriage today. I'm speaking about love. So does marriage, uh, does love apply to marriage? Well, certainly hope so. So I definitely hope it, the, the boot fits there. But I'm speaking about love. In fact, the passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians that we're going to read today was not written to married couples. Did you know that? 1 Corinthians 13 is quoted at weddings and on pictures and invitations. But 1 Corinthians 13 was not written to married couples. It was actually written to a church by a single guy. So there's something for you. And, and a single guy was, now, now Paul, who wrote it, was single. He did speak about marriage elsewhere, like in Ephesians and Colossians, which is always fun when the single person is the expert on how marriage ought to be. You married couples out there, here's how you ought to do it. But Paul does that elsewhere. But in Corinthians, he's not speaking on marriage. 
He's speaking to a church that is very dysfunctional because the church is very divided. In fact, he comes out of the gate and says, y'all fighting and bickering with each other in your church, and that's not healthy. He actually tells them that it's worldly. Like, you know, we all define what worldly is. is. He says it's, it's being divisive and fighting with each other and acting like the world instead of loving like Jesus loves you. So he corrects the divisiveness and the tribalism and the strife and the, and the, and the and all that stuff. He, they have some very bad things going on that we won't talk about today. He has to correct that. They weren't supporting each other through those problems, but they were gossiping. There was lawsuits in between believers. It was an ugly scene. He talks about how the church ought to operate, about how to use our spiritual gifts, whether it's prophesying or tongues or, or charity or helps or serving, whatever it may be. And then, in the middle of this long letter to this troubled church, Paul stops mid-conversation about the church itself and stops and says, let me talk about love to you. And then he gets right back into talking about how the church ought to operate. So this is not a written, this passage is not written about marriage, it's written about relationships. So, so that's, that's what I want to say to you today. Now here's the thing. Does, that, does this apply to your marriage if you're married? Absolutely this applies to your marriage. It applies to your children, it applies to your parents, it applies to your neighbors, it applies to your coworkers. Here's the thing about relationships. When it comes to loving people, it's always harder the more familiar you are with them, right? Because it's easy to be fairly civil and nice to the person across the gas pump from you or in the grocery store line for a few minutes, even if they're a little irritating, because you can just get out of there. But the closer you are in proximity with somebody, the more challenging it is to really love them in a tangible way, consistently. So it's harder when you go to your job where you see that same person for 40 hours a week or more. <laughs> it's harder when you go to your friend circle and you have drama, someone spills the tea, right? It's harder to do that with your friends or it's harder in, in, your, uh, in, your, in your, maybe your faith community where you see people more intimately than you do passing on the streets or maybe if you're a close-knit neighborhood or in your house with your children or your parents or your spouse, the closer the relationship, the more, the more important it is for us to figure out what love looks like. And so today as we approach this passage, I want us to approach it with the, with the wisdom of the, 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 poetic, the poetic words of Foreigner when he said, I want to know what love is and I want you to show me, okay? So we're going to look at some verses here in, in 1 Corinthians and I hope that somewhere in this passage we'll see a challenge to be loving. And I want you to apply it to where it needs to be applied. Now, here's the th I'll get to that in a minute. Let me just start with, with verse 1. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Paul says, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels. So he's referring to like, if I was multilingual, all the languages of earth, angels would be referring to heavenly languages that we don't know, earthly languages being all the earthly languages out there. Now, who, how many folks can speak all the languages? I want to know, is anyone here truly bilingual? Any bilingual people? You can speak two languages here? Anybody? No? Okay, last hour. We had a really good turnout last hour. No one there spoke two languages either. No one's bilingual in our church, apparently. Unless you're online and you're bilingual, you can let us know in the comments section. Okay. I, wanna, I made a rabbit trail here last hour. I'm going to do it again now because we're not bilingual. I want to say something to all of us that's nothing to do with the sermon today. When you see somebody in your orbit, in the community, you know, you know and, they, and they speak two languages, but they don't speak, the English is their second language, and they don't speak it as well as you because it's their second language, we all ought to think about, we're so arrogant sometimes. I, I always see people make fun of people 
who don't speak English as well as we do because it's their second language. So they say something in English and they say it kind of funny or they use the wrong verbiage tense and we laugh at them because they're like, oh, they said that wrong because they don't speak it as well. And we get a little arrogant sometimes about people's uh, language because they're so dumb because they don't speak my language as well as I do. Folks, if someone's bilingual and they can speak our language at all, that's better than you and I can do for their language probably. I never understand the arrogance sometimes of us all. They make fun of somebody who's smart enough to speak a second language, and we can't, but we'll make fun of their second language. So I just po- I'm just i poking the bear a little bit. I always, it's kind of weird. Most of us aren't even unilingual. You know, we don't speak English very well. I, I speak my, I'm really, I, I are good at English, you know. So we're not even that good. So don't make fun of somebody because they speak another language and your language not as well as you do. That's just a free shot for you there. Now, um, I have to be honest today. I, well, I don't have to be honest, but I'm going to tell you this today. Some of you didn't know this about me. Please, right? But I'm actually multilingual. In fact, I didn't raise my hand because I was asking you, but did you know I can speak all the languages of the entire world? Like all of them. I never, maybe you never heard this about me before. I've never shared it up here, but I can speak like all, like all the languages personally, except Greek. Except Greek because Greek, which is kind of funny because I'm a pastor, so you think if there's one language, I should know it should be Greek. But I can speak every language except Greek, and I'm pretty good at it. So I know some of you don't believe me. I can see the looks of dis, dis, distrust on your face. So I'm going to ask you, someone name a language. Pick a language, any language. Japanese. Jap- Japanese. <sighs> well, it's all Greek to me. So anyhow, I don't know. But um, that's my dad joke for the day, okay? I'm sorry I couldn't help myself. Um, so, no. If, if Paul says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Okay? In other words, I'm just a bunch of words, the noise. It's no good without love. He continues in verse 2. He says, if I had the gift of prophecy so I could, in other words, know what's going to happen and speak into the future and it comes true or understand God's word to be able to teach it to others in a way to help them live and follow God or I had the gift of prophecy if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge and if I had such faith that I could move mountains. In other words, if I had all the spiritual gifts you could possibly imagine. But if I didn't love others, I would be nothing, Paul says. That's a pretty strong statement because many of us, we spend our lives pursuing these things that we think give us credentials, give us street cred. Like, I'm good at this. This is I'm, I'm honing in my skill set. I'm adding things to my resume. And so we want to have all these things and be the best at them. And Paul said, if I was the best at those things but didn't have love, it's nothing. In fact, he, says, he said, I am nothing. Now, here's, here's the implication there. This should be encouraging to some of us who don't feel like we're the best at certain things. If you flip that around, that means that if I don't have all those gifts and all those talents and others have more than me, I don't have any of that stuff, but I love, well, then I'm something because that's what's more important. He continues in verse 3. He says, if I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. And that's an interesting statement because we would look at that verse and say, isn't that a contradiction? I think that's what love is. Like giving all your stuff away to others, to the poor. Isn't that loving? 
But Paul says you can do things that look loving for the wrong reasons. Like I give things away because it makes me look good. Sacrifice my body to get fame and recognition. He says you could do those things not from a place of love. If, if I do th- things like that without love being the, the behind it all, I've gained nothing. Now, Paul's going to take the next few verses here. He's going to break it down for us. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, he gives us one at a time descriptions of what love looks like in practice. And we're going to put them on the screen in a little bit here. And when we do, we're not going to put them in the regular form. We're going to separate each thing he says by itself as its own sentence. So it's not going to be in the format that it is in our Bibles, but it's the same exact words. And we'll look at all the verses together at the end. But I want to show them to you isolated one at a time from verses 4 through 7. You can follow along as well in your Bibles. Before we get there, though, here's what I want to say. This is where it gets gritty. Because love, love is, is, is an English word. It's both a noun and a verb. Love as a noun is what we call an abstract noun. But as a verb, it's an action, isn't it? So in other words, um, abstract would be like, oh, I, I fell in love, or I just feel love. But that's so hard to pin that down on anything. But, but love as a verb is very specific. So Paul basic, Paul's talking about that. In fact, elsewhere, the Bible tells us that God so loved, action loved the world that he gave his only one and only son, right? And, and it's the idea of the action, the love that is given to us, though it's difficult. So Paul says here, look, Here's what I want us to understand. I'm going to tell you what love looks like, but it's a hard list. I'm going to tell you right now, this list today is tough. When I go through this, some of us are going to be sitting here today saying, oh, man. But Paul's challenging us to love. And here's the thing, and I'm going to, I'm going to end here at the end, so let me go here real quick. He says it by, by beginning by saying, first of all, you're loved. God loves you that way, so rest in that. But he calls us, Jesus said, love each other the way I've loved you. Go and do that. That's what following him looks like. So from a place where we are loved, we sing about just now, Jesus loves me. We just sing the song. As we sing about how loved we are, we want to turn around and say, how can I love the way that God calls me to love in the way that he loved me? He's going to give us a list, and it's challenging. And as I get into the list, I know that there are going to be, there's a temptation for some people in the world can look back at that list and say, I have a problem with that because you can, some of those things sound like you're really all in. And if you love that way, someone could take advantage of you or mistreat you. And it could be an unhealthy dynamic. And I want to acknowledge that that can indeed be true if you're with a very unhealthy narcissistic person. I want to acknowledge that that's a possibility. But I want to say, but it doesn't change the fact that we're called to love. So I want to say three things for those who would be dismissive of these verses because after all, you could be love somebody and it could be in an unhealthy situation. So let me say three things about this before I get into the verses. First thing is this. Um, yes, there, there's, but there's a, ditch, there's a ditch on both sides of that road. Yes, you could end up in one ditch of, of, of applying the principles of loving in a non-holistic way, blindly without any other considerations in, a, in an unhealthy environment, for sure. But here's the other ditch. The other ditch is people who say, because that can happen, therefore, I'm going to take all the punch out of the idea of what love's supposed to do. Because love does call us to do hard things. And if we look at things that, that are love and say, well, yeah, but that could be misused, or that could be abused, or that could be whatever, therefore, I can just kind of say that and kind of write off its punch and its effectiveness to say, I don't have to do that if it does, I don't feel like it. It's a whole other ditch. And as long as I've been in ministry, I find more people in the ditch of excusing ourselves from the call of God to be loving with the excuse that, 
well, you know, you could end up in a ditch on the other side of the road. You could take it too far. So therefore, that's my way of saying, I'm going to defang the power of love and excuse myself from doing anything hard and end up in a very, uh, very self-serving. And, and the world does that. We're all about you and taking care of yourself, and we should take care of ourselves. But as a neglect of responsibility, we do that because the world has largely pushed God aside, right? But we should not. We are followers of him. We should see that that's how he loved us. And we should love others the same way. So yes, I know that there would be a concern about love being taken too far to somebody in an unhealthy way. But most of the time in my experience, we underlove. Second thing I want to say is this. In case you find yourself in what feels like an unhealthy situation while you try to love, I want to say this to you. That's why our faith community is so important. That's why it's important that we come into a church setting and we belong. Because our faith community is a place where we should build relationships, where we can have people we can go to and we're, who can help us. And, and if we're going through something, they can protect us if we're being mistreated. They can protect us and, and stand and give us courage when we need courage. And they can help us understand that. They can't do it if you just wall off and say, I'm not going to keep it to myself and accept people should read my minds or reach across the hard divide to me. But we should step out and say, hey, I'm vulnerable. I, I'm going through something. And let people help you. Be in community. This is what's going on with me. Because we need that. That's how people can help you from being in an abusive situation. That's how people can help you know uh, and protect you. But also when people can say, hey, you should do this. We can have that balance of being motivated where we need to be motivated and defended where we need to be defended. And it's found in community. And that's why we say come to church, get to know each other, get into a Sunday school class or a small group or get into, um, get, have coffee with other people, get, come see your pastors or your deacons. Find people you can talk to because you should not walk through those hard things alone. Because here's why. The Bible sometimes is written and it's just on paper. It's just, like, it's just words. It's black and white. And there's no, it's hard to know nuance. You can't ask it questions like, yeah, but what about this? And God has provided a faith community for a place where we can go and say, I see God's ideal written down, but my real situation is a little more complicated. So how do I mix God's ideal and my real? And that's where community comes in. And if we don't do that, we're either going to just throw it all out the window or we're going to be doing it the wrong way. So, so yes, read the scriptures, see what God says, but then find people to help you navigate that. That's what God wants us to do. And the third thing I want to say to all of us today when we push back against what love requires of us is this. Love isn't always easy. That's kind of the point. Listen, it requires conflict or disagreement for the higher principles such as love to even be made possible. So let me try to illustrate that for you before I move on. This is probably a sermon in itself, which is dangerous. But let's think of other words in the Bible that are very edgy and controversial, like obey, or submit. Like the word submit, the Bible says that we're supposed to submit to our governing authorities, our, our, our government, or our laws of our land. Like, you know, well, I don't like the laws of my land, right? Submit to governing authorities, gov government and stuff. Or obey, children, obey your parents. Maybe you're in a job situation with an employer, supposed to obey the rules there. So we find ourselves in situations all of us do in, in parts of life and relational dynamics where we're supposed to obey or submit. And there's a lot of pushback, especially anymore about against that. But here's the thing. It requires a disagreement for there to, to be really obedience or submission anyhow. If I say, well, I'll obey all the laws or the rules, that, uh, the things I agree with, but not the ones I don't agree with, that's, not, that's no obedience. That's just doing what I want to do. 
So I'm trying to illustrate that for you better. If your child comes to you today and says, um, you know what, mom and dad, I am, I'm going to obey the rules of our house. You know, I'm, I'm eight years old now. We have the rules of the house. I'm 10 years old. I'm 15 years old. We have the rules of the house um, that I agree with because I'm obedient. So I do all the things that you say that I agree with. But none of the things that I don't agree with because that's just stupid. Is that, is, that being, is that children obeying your parents or is that something else? See, it takes the disagreement between the two of you for it to actually be a thing, right? It takes the conflict. You're not obeying when you want to do it. If you say to your son, son, you're eight years old, eat your ice cream. As an obedient child, I shall do this because I am just a, I a good one. There's, there's nothing there. You're doing what you want to do. It requires not wanting to, right? It requires a conflict of interest to choose to obey or submit to something. So this is true for every principle of life. It requires, it's true about mercy. I'll be merciful to people who never mess up. That doesn't make sense. I'll forgive people who never cross me. You can't do that, you know. All these things require there to be conflict for them to work. So I know when we get to the hard parts of Scripture and just like throw them all out when it's complicated, it just, it, it will never, the point is when it's complicated. Same with love. You're like, well, I love people who are lovable. Jesus once said, look, love your enemies. And by the way, he modeled that for us. Uh, Paul, wrote, Paul, who wrote this passage we're reading today, Paul said elsewhere um, that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were difficult, Christ died for us. And Jesus, while he walked the earth, said, love your enemies. Be good to those that hurt you and curse you and gossip about you and are mean to you and all the things. Be, you love anyhow. And then he makes this statement to, to kind of drive the point home. He says, if you only love those who love you, how is that special? Everyone does that. The bad people do that. Mafia lords do that. You're good to my family, you're going to be good to me, you know. I mean, anyone's good to people who love them back. There's no magic. There's nothing special there. God says, Jesus, I'm calling you to something different than the world. Not to be worldly, but to love your enemies, to love people who are difficult. That's a challenge. So again, I kind of drive those points home as we read these difficult verses that you could take it too far potentially, but most of us take, don't take it far enough. We are in the other ditch. And if you're, if you're not sure how to navigate that in a relationship you're in, plug into your faith community. Let people walk through that with you. That's what we're here for. And number three, it is hard, but that's the point. These higher principles require conflict or disagreement to even be made possible. So with that in mind, let's get into what love looks like according to Paul in these four, these four verses. First thing he says is love is patient. Oh, don't we love that word patience? My favorite word. Like they say, never pray for patience. Oh God, give me patience, please. And hurry up about it. I need it now. Um, patience is tricky. Pa love is patient does not mean like in a, in a dating or marriage situation where you're like, we're supposed to leave for our activity at 7 o'clock and she's still not ready. 7.30. That's not what this is referring to. That's just called, that's just called life right there. That's just, that's just, sorry. No, what it refers to in this context is this. Love is patient means this, that everyone around you, including you, is not perfect and none of us are whole or complete. We all have character flaws. We all have character deficiencies. We all have room to grow. And for some of us, it's a lifelong journey. Our sanctification is a lifelong journey that may not be fully complete until we stand before God someday in heaven. 
And so along the way, we have quirks and we have bad habits and we say things we shouldn't say or don't say things we should say. We do things we shouldn't do or don't do things we should do. We have just irritating qualities because we're all flawed and we're all in a process of sanctification that is a lifelong journey. And patience looks at somebody around you and says, I will be patient with the fact that you're not perfect and your flaws rub or bother or annoy me or inconvenience me because I understand that it might be a, you might have a long ways before. I wish you'd fix it now. I wish you'd change now. But you haven't changed yet and you haven't, but maybe you'll change now. But I'm going to be patient as God works in you because I want God to be patient as he works in me and I want people to be patient. I need patience and I'm going to be patient with you even though you're still struggling in your growth. That's hard. The closer the relationship is, the harder that is. But patience says, I'm okay. I know who you are. And I'm, I love you. Love is patient. Ouch. Love is kind. Now, kind is a big word. Kind does not mean that it's not unkind. Unkind is a different word that we're going to see a synonym. We're going to see a synonym for unkind in another word a few minutes from now. But kind is not just the absence of unkindness. Kind is the presence of kindness, and it's an action, not the absence of a negative. In other words, I cannot be unkind, but then kind of do neither. Kindness is an action where I say, let me do something for you. Even if I'm tired, even if I'm annoyed, I'm going to be kind. I'm going to contribute. I'm going to, it's serving. It's all the things that we do that are kindnesses to others. And what love calls us to do is not just to not be unkind, but to actively say, how can I be kind in what I do for you and to you? Let's keep reading. Ready? Love is not jealous. Now, this is one of those spots where I kind of like, you know, I like, I like the new translations we use because they're so much more practical. I think it's better in a lot of ways. But I think this is one of those words that we've used, the colloquial word, jealous. The, the Greek word here used to be translated um, into the word envy or envious. And I kind of like that word better because it's more accurate because jealousy is not all bad. Right? God says he, in the Hebrew scriptures that he's a jealous God. That's not, he's not sinning. You know? Like he's okay to be. This, this does not mean that you say, oh, my spouse is out on a date with somebody else. And that's okay because I'm not, love is not jealous. That's not what it means, okay? This is referring to envy. This is referring to saying, I am upset that something good happened to you that didn't happen for me. So here's an example of that. You go to your job and someone else gets the promotion that you would have loved to have. And they get the pay raise. And you're like, green-eyed monster coming out. How could they get that promotion and pay raise? I, could, I wanted that. And you struggle, and it puts a little bit of a, a, a friction in your relationship with them because you're jealous. Here's the thing. Why can't we be happy for them? That's what the scriptures call us to do elsewhere as well. Here's the thing. If you would have gotten the promotion, if you'd have gotten the promotion and the pay raise, you know what you'd want? You'd want everyone else to be happy for you. You'd be offended if they weren't happy. Like, I thought we're friends. I thought we're friends that you're happy for me. You'd be offended. And yet we don't turn around and give it to somebody else. It's so easy to divorce those concepts. It's like I always say this about kids and, you know, we, you know, we struggle to see that person's perspective. And this is why a lot of drama happens in friendships. We see it from our side only. If I got the promotion and the pay raise, I'd want you to be happy for me. And I'd be hurt if you weren't. But if, if you get it, I'm going to be jealous. Isn't, do you see the dichotomy there? Love is not jealous. Love is not envious. Love looks at you and says, oh, this benefited you in your home, in your marriage even. Love benefited you, but not me. 
Oh, something that happened and, and, it, and it worked out good for you, but it cost me something. I had to do something and it must have been nice to be you. I'm not jealous that somehow you came out better in the situation between the two of us. I'm not upset that some of this benefited you more than me. I'm happy for you. I want the best for you. I'm not jealous or envious. I'm excited when you win, even if I didn't. Love is not boastful. Oh, aren't boastful people fun? You get around, it's always about them. It's always about, it's not about you, it's about me. I'm gonna boast. Boastful people. Every time you talk to them, they're just basically waiting for you to stop talking, your lips stop moving so they can jump in and tell you about them. Like, are you almost done? Are you almost done? Good, I got some things to say about me. The me monster comes out, you know? Isn't that fun? Um, that's, not, that's not what love does. But people do it. They make, everything's about me. The way I relate with you is to tell you all of my great end exploits and you all appreciate me. That's how I do it at my home. That's how I do it at my friend circles. And anyways, kind of just, if you have a story about something you did, they'll, down, they'll, they'll top it. Oh, that ain't nothing. <laughs> so sorry. So sorry for my nothing story. I didn't mean to bore you with it. Because it's always them, right? And um, I remember a person one time saying, it's like they, they're waiting for you to stop talking to say, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, well you, me, you, me. See the difference there? Like, oh, I, yes, you're amazing, not me. The danger of boastfulness is that we're always making it about us. But here's what love does. Love says, I don't got to impress you with me. I don't, need to, I don't need to get everyone thinking, boy, is he incredible or is she incredible. Love says, let me brag on you. Tell me about you. What did you accomplish? What did you do? Oh, man, that's incredible. I'm, that's wonderful. Congratulations. And if I, I want to say something about, oh, yeah, well, I did better than that. No, bite my tongue and just say, hey, good for you. I'm excited about you. I'm interested in you. Love is not boastful. Love is not proud. That's the inside. Boastful comes on the outside, but pride is on the inside. And if I could be very blunt about pride, pride is at the root of every struggle we have. Pride is at the root of every unloving behavior we do. It's always about us. That's why we're jealous. That's why we're, that's why we're boastful. That's why we're not patient. And all the things that we're going to read, you got at some point got to say, what's going on in my heart? That The me monster's there. Okay, love is not proud. Now, I know this is a tough list. I want to remind you that Paul's just saying, I'm calling us to love. I'm calling us to be loving people because we are loved. And, and, and Jesus said, do as I've done. Take my commands, take my example, and love. And he says, this is what it looks like. He continues, love is not rude. This is the opposite of kindness. This is like unkindness. Rude. You say, well, they were rude first, but we're not paying back evil for evil. We're saying, I could be rude because I've had a hard day. I could be rude because you've annoyed me. But I can say that love has called me to say, I'm not going to get down in that mud. I can still choose to not be rude even though I am provoked. And every time that you and I choose to be rude to someone, whether it's in our, our home or in our friend circle or in our workplace or in our faith community or any place at all, we're rude and we justify it because they had it coming or we've had a tough time. We're just excusing ourselves from doing the loving thing. Love is not rude. So what do I do with the things that bother me? You take them to Jesus, for one. You, that's, you don't have conflict resolution. There's a way to, play to, to do it. But it never includes rudeness. Never. Here's one for us all. Love does not demand its own way. <laughs> you know the people. It's my way or the highway. 
Love demands its own way. It's all about what I want. We're going to do it my way or we're not going to play at all. That's not what love does. I'll take my ball and go home. If no one wants to play my game, take my ball and go home. Because it's got to be my way. What if it's not my way? What if, what if what's best here is that you have a different idea? What if you do it your way? What if my idea doesn't get recognized as great this time? But maybe if I can not be okay with that, Maybe next time it will be used. It doesn't matter. Because here's the thing. There's an old statement. What's best for everyone is what's best. What's best for people is what's best. That's the opposite of me saying what's best for me is what's best. What's best for me is what's best. No. What's best for people is what's best. So if this is what you feel, okay, then I don't have to have my way. I'm not going to take my ball and go home. I don't need that. I'm okay to not demand Here's, here's a little secret to life. Are you, I'm going to say something that some of you have thought of before, some of you have never thought of before. But all of us would be wise to think about this as we interact with humanity. Did you know that the world is run by stubborn people? And that narcissistic people oftentimes get their way in life? You know why? Because everybody else just has to figure out how to get the job done around them. Because they sure ain't going to budge or not make it about themselves. So everyone else just figures out how to keep the world turning and keep the thing moving forward and work around the stubborn ones and work around the narcissists. Because you have to. And everyone else does it. And so that, that almost, you say, well, that makes them feel that they're okay. No, it's not okay to be that way. But what are you going to do? And thank God for people who just sit there and say, okay, well, that's how you're going to be. But we got to keep, we're going to find a way to, to manage that and still keep this thing moving forward. And so you might, you know, we may have to like, let you do your thing. We may have to let you get your way because we got to keep this thing going forward. I don't want to be that person. You shouldn't want to be the person that says, my way. Love does not demand its own way. Love says what's best for you. What's best for everyone is what's best. Maybe one of us can't get our way, but if, if, if I get my way and you don't, it's a bummer for you. Well, that's not my problem. Well, let it be a bummer for me then. Let's let you have your way. So this is a big idea. Love is not irritable. Another phrase in our old English translation, it says love is not easily provoked. And I like that phrase because it means it's not easily irritable. Things are irritating sometimes. You know, if you get a contact with a scratch in it or a hair in the lens, and you're trying to be, you're trying to be nice, but you're like, I'm so sorry. Or you got a toothache, you know, things can make us irritable. But here's the thing. Love is not easily irritable. In other words, it, I know that things can happen that make it harder for us, but if we find ourselves walking around all the time like one big raw nerve, like we're walking around as long as nothing bumps against me, I'm okay. As long as nothing bumps against me, I'm okay. But as soon as something bumps against me, just wrong, it's always like reaction time. Why do we do that? Why do we blow up when something bumps against us? Because something's not healthy. And honestly, it's why it's important to find to talk to someone, get inside what's causing me to come out that way. Because I'm very easily irritable. And I'm not being loving when I do that. I need to figure something out. It's a big idea right there. Here's a bigger one. Ready? Love keeps no record of being wronged. It is very hard to live in life with people who keep a record of being wronged. Like you have a fight, and they're like, oh, that bothers me. Time out, time out, right there, hold it. And they go into the other room, and they bring the dolly out with all the boxes of the things that happened over the past 20 years. Flop, here's the court case, here's the records, here's what you did to me before, and 20 years ago you said this, and 15 years ago you did this, and, 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 and it's a proof. They have an unrefutable uh, proof that you're a jerk. And it's like, <laughs> right here, this comes again. 
How can you ever live in that situation? It's hard. That's not what forgiveness looks like. We never forgive something. We never forgave anything if we always reach back and bring it back up as a weapon the next time it's convenient. If you go back in the past and say, oh yeah, well, now it's going to make my case against you and, and make you feel bad. That's, that's not forgiveness. That's not love. That's not what Jesus did for us, folks. And I know it's easy to do that, but that's where we got to look at ourselves and say, what's not healthy here? What's not healthy here that I need to figure out why I keep going back to things that are gone and making them about now? Because God, I said this before so many times, the devil lives in the past. He builds your past to give guilt, but God's spirit leads us into the future to say, we can't change before, but I'm looking at it from here forward. And that's how we ought to be in our relationships. If something happens, and it's like, well, that's how they've always been. Love is patient. They're on a long journey of sanctification. That's okay. But instead of bringing up past wrongs, you say, well, let's deal with this situation by itself instead of wheeling out to the court records. Because I'll tell you exactly how and when you've ever offended me. That is something that we need to look at. Let's keep going. Love does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Is that a mouthful or what? I'm going to hand the microphone to you and let you explain this one to me, okay? No, I'm going to tell you what this means. This is kind of a big idea. And the best way to illustrate it is sports. Because I love sports. I mean, I have any kind of sport, but I certainly love certain sports more than others. Baseball, basketball, football, the classics, of course. I've been watching a little bit of, uh, after watching Ted Lasso, I've got to watch football, um, uh, European football now, or soccer. Um, I mean, I love sports, right? So here's the deal. I mean, seriously, like, if anything's competing, like, I want to be involved in that thing. Pick a winner. Here's the problem with sports. I'm explaining it, and I, especially with football. If the referee makes a, a call, it always needs to be in favor of my team. If he calls in favor of my team, it's because it's the right call. And if he calls in favor of the other team, it's an utter tragedy. You need to know something. If my team ever loses a game, if, we, if a calls that were questionable went my way, that's just the breaks. Now, if calls went the other team's way and we lose, we didn't just lose the game. We lost because it's hard to beat 53 other guys and three referees. Or five referees, I mean, they are. You know, it's hard to beat. The, the refs are wearing their uniforms, you know. That's how it always is. We don't say that when we win. It's always the other way. If, if the other team loses and we win and they say the refs helped us win, we're like, ah, uh, 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 don't blame that on the referees because you see, you missed a lot of plays. Blame all the times you didn't make the pass or didn't, you know, you fumbled the ball. Don't blame those two calls you didn't agree with. But if our team loses, it's all about those two calls, you know. That's the whole point. That's how we are. And we carry that into our, I, I, on a bigger scale, I've, I grew up watching people tell me, you know, don't cheat, don't cheer for cheaters. And then when their team got full of them, they're like, oh, my, their fan base was like, oh, no, that's okay. And we change the rules when it helps us. As long as we win, we don't care if it's unfair. So then we move it into politics. That's politics nowadays, isn't it? Isn't that politics nowadays? If, if, if we win the contest, we win it fair and square. If we lose the contest, we were robbed and it was cheating. And we throw those stones all the time. Like if my side looks bad, you're trying to make us look bad. If you look bad, it's because you are bad. It's all about the game. All we want to do is win the game. We don't care if it's dishonest, if it's nasty, if it's cruel. We don't care if we say things that are hurtful. It don't matter. We got to win. And we carry that into our relationships at home. And our families has got to win. So all of a sudden, it's like, you know how it looks in a relationship? It's like, if, if I come out on top of the situation, good. 
It doesn't matter if it wasn't fair. Now, if it wasn't fair against me, I'd be screaming how life's unfair, how this relationship's unfair. If it works at my advantage, that's just how it goes. Because that's what I want. I want to just get my way. I want to win. And love does not rejoice about injustice. That Love rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Even if the truth makes me look bad. Even if the truth gives you the benefit, not me. Even if truth means I don't get what I want. I want the truth. I want what's right to be center and front, not me. And if I want me to be center and front, then I don't care if it's fair or not. I just want to win. But if I want what's right to prevail, I'm going to rejoice in that, even if it's at my expense. That's a big call right there, isn't it? So let's move on to the last verse. I'm going to put four on the screen at one time because they all kind of go together in some way. Verse 7 says, Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love is always hopeful and love endures through every kind of circumstance. And that's where it feels hard. You're like, really, Arlen, that's that's challenging to read that because how can love endure uh, through certain kinds of circumstances with that situation? Or how love did give up or I gave up. What does that say about me? All that kind of stuff. So let me make this plain to you. Paul's not just speaking about you and an impossible situation. He's, referring, he's talking to a church of people about their attitude about love in general. So here's what I'm trying to say. Here's how this looks in practice. Just because you tried to be a loving person before and it all crashed on the rocks doesn't mean that we should now say, I've tried to love before and that didn't work out, so I'm done with that. We should, we, I, I've tried to do that. Now I'm just too jaded. I've tried to do the right thing and it bit me. I tried to do the right thing and it hurt me. I tried to do the right thing and someone took advantage of me. So therefore, I'm just done trying to be a loving person because I see how that turns out. I'm never giving, no, love never gives up. Love never stops saying, I know that loving doesn't always pan out my way. But ask God how that turned out. When he loves us and gives so much for us and we don't always appreciate or reciprocate or respond. And I'm not going to stop loving even though sometimes love is in vain, it seems like, or love is rejected, or love is abused. I'm still going to say it's still the right way for me to live, to be a loving person. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to lose faith. I'm not going to be, I'm going to be hopeful, and I'm going to endure through the things that have happened to me along the way. Otherwise, we become jaded and unhealthy people, and we're called to love. Now, that's a pretty big list. And let me say this. If reading that list that Paul gives us seems very daunting to you, if you're like, man, by the way, I hope so. I, and then I, I'm going to say this, that sounds a little harsh. I hope when we read a list like that, some one or more of those phrases grabs a hold of you and me, both, and says, hey, Arlen, you need to do better there. That's a good thing. That's God's spirit working in our life. So I hope that somewhere God's knocked on your door. That's a good thing. But here's the thing. If that list overall seems daunting and you're like, oh, I don't want to be that kind of loving person and uh, so much asked of me, here's the good news. There's another side to that coin. That not only is that how we're supposed to love as we're called to love, but that is how we are loved by God. That's the whole, that's what Jesus said in his last words in his upper room with his disciples. He says, love each other as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. In other words, God says, look, I'm going to show you how it's done. I love you, now go do the same. Um, So John, who is one of his closest disciples who records those words of Jesus, later writes a separate letter, and he says this, God is love. Not just the noun, the abstract noun, but God is loving, all the things that we read about. So in other words, that's our motivation. Or as John also said, we love 
because he first loved us. So he sets the ground. He says, look, all this stuff about love and how hard it is to love somebody, I've done that for you. Now, I'm calling you if you want to be my follower, to be my disciple, to do the same. That's hard. He goes, I know. It's like taking up your cross and following me. It's like denying yourself daily and following me. It's hard, isn't it? But here's the thing. That's how I love you, and I'm calling you to follow me and love each other. So if the list seems daunting, here's what I want to say to you. Begin with the first things first. First things first is God loves you. First things first is you are loved. And I'll be honest, I, I think that, that some of us, we're not loving because of maybe a number of reasons. Maybe we've just gotten hard-hearted or jaded or overheard over time. Perhaps we're narcissistic. Maybe we're just human. But one reason people struggle to be loving, one reason people struggle to be loving is because we struggle to believe that we are loved. I believe that if you understood how much God really loved you, you could rest in that. If you realize how much God loved you, and it was kind of a one-way street. Talk about the ditch on the one side of the road. That's God. He's like, I love you, crucify me. I love you, spit in my face. I love you, reject me. I love you, put my faith in my gospel and still walk away and forget like I exist. God loves us so one way, it's not fair. Like the ways that we say, it's not healthy to love someone that way. It's not healthy to love someone that way. I know, I agree with you, but here's the thing. I agree with you. But that's exactly how God loves us. Isn't that weird? So I'm not saying, look, get, get your community to help you navigate the hard things. But here's the thing. God loves us pretty radically. And so when we look at God's love, we ought to rest in that. And from a place of saying, I am loved, even more than I love him back, I can now actually love somebody else more than they love me back. Because I'm not just doing it for them, I'm doing it for him because he loves me more than I could ever love him back for. We love because he first loved us. So I'm going to read those verses again to you. And I want you to read the verses this time, and I want you to hear them not as God saying, this is how you should love each other. I want you to hear these verses as, as being saying, this is how God loves you. If God is love, this is how God loves you. Because I'll tell you right now, I want to benefit from that kind of love. I may not always want to give that kind of love, but I want to benefit from that kind of love. And so we read the verses again. Paul says in verse 4, love is patient and kind. Boy, I'm so glad God's patient with me, aren't you? And kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It, does not keep, it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. That's God's love. And I know for some of the people who are really deep in their Bible history and the theologian nerds, are like, actually, I think some things in that verse right there is not exactly how God loves us because it seems like it's too generous. Because I think that we've let religion become this thing. Religion's become this thing where we can control through a fear of God to control people into the behavior we want them to be in. But God's, Jesus said that when the gospel came along, his perfect love casts out that fear. It should be a control mechanism. So maybe God's love is bigger than we give it credit for being theologically. Maybe some of us have never been able to reconcile that God can love us that much because we've been told otherwise or we've told other people otherwise. But I've said this so many times before. The gospel means good news. And if the version of the gospel that you've heard does not sound very much like good news, 
I want to propose that perhaps you've heard the wrong version all along. That God loves you radically, never gives up. God's like, look, look, I love you. I'm never going to give you up, never going to let you down, never going to run around and desert you. I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself there. They're going to make you cry. Okay, I'll stop. Um, he's like, look, I love you. And it's bigger and deeper than you give it credit for being. So stop doubting it and rest in how loved you are. And then maybe from there, maybe if you figure that part out, you'll be able to turn around and say, can I love other people? Even if it's hard, like he loves me, I certainly can. But you need to begin at the foundation that you are that loved. So Paul ends his chapter. He, Paul continues the chapter and says, here's what love looks like and here's how this applies to your spiritual gifts and here's how it applies to being mature, growing up, never fully understanding this thing until we get to heaven. He closes by saying in verse 13, three things will last forever. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And then he adds this. He says, and the greatest of these is love. And the greatest lover of all is God to you.